Hello, and welcome to The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and today we're going to discuss the Byzantine-Sasanian Wars before Islam in an effort to better understand why the Arabs were able to defeat them. The empires fought two major wars during the Prophet's lifetime, and these left them totally unprepared to face the Muslims when they emerged from the desert to challenge them. While there are many interesting details about these wars, we will try to keep our focus only on those that have an influence on our story going forward, today in Episode 5, Wasteful Wars. When trying to understand their overall conflict, it is easiest to think of the empires as sharing three border zones. In the north, there were the Caucasus, mountain ranges with local populations that cherished their independence and agitated for their own interests, most important of whom were the Armenians. In the south, there was the desert between Iraq and Syria, which separated the two tribal confederacies maintained by the empires. The Byzantine allies were the Ghassanids, south of Syria, and their Sasanian counterparts were the Lakhmids in western Iraq. Between the desert in the south and the mountains in the north was Mesopotamia, Greek for the land between the rivers. The rivers in question are of course the Tigris and the Euphrates, and Mesopotamia came to refer specifically to the northern half of these rivers and both the fertile lands between them and those adjacent to their banks. This region was imperial territory on both sides, full of tax-producing agricultural towns protected by state armies in garrisons along its frontier, most important of which were the Byzantine Dera and the Sassanid Nisibis. Look at the map associated with this episode to see the Byzantine-Sassanid border in more detail. Okay, now that we've got that covered, let the hostilities begin. Despite a supposed 50-year peace signed in 562, tensions between the two empires continued to simmer before eventually boiling over in the 570s. On top of expelling the Aksumite allies of the Byzantines from the Yemen around that time, the Sasanians had the Lakhmids raid Ghassanid territory in Syria, though they were not very successful. In 572, the Byzantines convinced the Armenians, kingmakers of the Caucasus, to switch sides and rebel against the Sasanids, promising them more autonomy under Byzantine patronage and help in facing down any Persian armies sent to coerce them back into their sphere of influence. This dramatically shifted the power balance in the north, and the Byzantines were now winning decisively on that front. For a while, the Byzantines were also winning in Mesopotamia, but a rumor made its way to the emperor that the general responsible for his victories there had his eye on the throne. The sudden sacking of this general led to considerable disarray, which the Sassanids were quick to take advantage of. Their capture of the fortified border city of Dera in southeast Anatolia is said to have literally driven the emperor insane. In another inexplicably self-destructive act, the emperor ordered the assassination of the chief of the Ghassanids. The chief survived the attempt on his life, but understandably ended his confederacy's alliance with the Byzantines, exposing their southern frontier. The Byzantines now agreed to pay tribute for peace in Mesopotamia, but the war raged on in the Caucasus as the Sassanids continued their efforts to regain authority over Armenian lands. 
A few years later, in 575, the Byzantines managed to mend their relationship with the Ghassanids, who quickly raided and sacked the Lakhmid capital of Hira. The next year, the Shahanshah Khosrow I embarked on his final and most ambitious campaign. He led a large Sassanid army through the Caucasus into Anatolia, but he failed to take any of the cities he had hoped to conquer, eventually having to retreat while contending with severe Byzantine assaults. This reversal emboldened the Byzantines who focused on their northern front and reached the Caspian Sea, which they used as a staging point to raid northern Iran. The Shahanshah sued for peace, but found the Byzantines in no mood to give up their hard-won gains. In 578, the truce in Mesopotamia came to an end, and Byzantine victories under their new magister militum Maurice worried the Shahanshah enough for him to sue for peace once again, but his son and successor, Hormuzid IV, brought negotiations to an end when he rose to power in 579 following his father's death. In 580, the Ghassanids again beat the Lakhmids on their own lands, and the Byzantines raided deep in Mesopotamia, crossing both rivers and reaching lands east of the Tigris. This is also the time that the new Shahanshah put his son, Khosrow II, in charge of the situation in Armenia. This Khosrow managed to convince the probably war-weary Armenian rebels to return to Sassanid overlordship, significantly improving the situation for his empire on its northern front. The next year, the Byzantines and Ghassanids undertook a joint campaign along the Euphrates, but when it struggled to make any progress, the leaders of the two forces resorted to blaming one another for its failure. Clearly, the Byzantine general Maurice had more clout and credibility within the empire, so the chief of the Ghassanids, the same one who had survived an assassination attempt nine years earlier, was arrested on charges of treachery, triggering hostilities between the Byzantines and their clients once more. A few years later, the Byzantines, now led by Emperor Maurice, arrested the successor to the Ghassanid chief, further fragmenting the Arab confederacy that once protected their southern border. For the rest of the 580s, the frontier between the two empires came to a grinding stalemate. In 589, the Shahanshah Hormuzid appointed one of his most successful military commanders from the east in charge of fighting the Byzantines in the west. After his sound defeat and humiliating dismissal, this popular general rebelled against the state. Alarmed members of the Sassanid court killed the Shahanshah and installed his son Khosrow II as his successor, hoping that this would quell the rebellion. It didn't, and the general marched on the capital defeating Khosrow and forced him to flee to the safety of Byzantine territory. Khosrow then asked Emperor Maurice for help, promising to return Byzantine lands conquered by the Sassanids should he retake his throne. Despite the unanimous rejection of this request by the Byzantine Senate, Maurice obliged, putting together an army of 35,000 for this purpose. Khosrow managed to win over a bulk of the Sassanid army stationed at Nisibis, the Sasanian counterpart to Dera, and the two forces defeated an army sent by the mutinous general in early 591. By the end of the year, the pretender to the throne was defeated in Azerbaijan, and the grateful Khosrow II agreed to an eternal peace with the Byzantine emperor. Assured of peace on his eastern front, Maurice now sent his armies to address other threats to his empire, namely the Slavs and Avars invading from the Balkans. The constant warfare had emptied the Byzantine treasuries of their wealth, and the empire was now effectively broke, necessitating strict fiscal reforms which included cutting payments to the armies. 
This led to several mutinies, the final one of which was in the Balkans in 602. The soldiers there declared their centurion, Phocas, emperor, and marched on the capital. Maurice's defenses were stretched so thin that he's reported to have armed the Blues and Greens, supporters of two rival chariot racing teams, but, unsurprisingly, the city still fell to the actual army. The Byzantine governor of Mesopotamia refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of Phocas and appealed to Khosrow II for help after the Byzantine emperor sent an army to take back the province from the uncooperative governor. The Shahanshah had spent the ten years since the last war stamping out various internal rebellions, no doubt due to the perceived weakness of his need for Byzantine help in taking back his throne. He immediately sensed the opportunity at hand and declared his intentions to avenge Maurice, bringing the eternal peace to an end. It was in that year, 602, that Khosrow II also severely damaged his alliance with the Lakhmids. Sources do not agree on the reasons behind this break. Some say the Lakhmids failed to support Khosrow in his fight against the usurping general that preceded him, others that the Lakhmid chief wouldn't give his daughter to the Shahanshah in marriage. The latter makes little sense, and while the former certainly seems to provide sufficient motive, it does not explain why Khosrow did not do away with the Lakhmids earlier. Other sources still sometimes blame the chief's replacement, painting him as a vengeful or power-hungry underling who spread false rumors of treachery about the rightful chief in his bid for control. In any case, many tribes from the Lakhmid confederation now broke with the empire and began raiding its border towns. Seven years later, in 609, they would ally with some of the Arabian Peninsula's more nomadic tribes and fight off a Sassanid army in the desert south of Iraq. This alliance's actions present a clear precursor to the raids ordered by Abu Bakr on the Sassanid Empire 24 years later. Arab sources agree that this victory was celebrated in the peninsula as a triumph of Arab unity against imperial aggression. Most sources say the Prophet himself celebrated the victory, though they do not agree on the date or significance of his praise for it. This is a good time to cover the Byzantine-Ghassanid alliance as well. Emperor Maurice's dislike of the Ghassanid chief clearly disrupted that relationship greatly, but some Arab tribes kept fighting for the empire. Personal grudges weren't all that got in the way, however. A much more important issue was that the Ghassanids and other Christians in the east, both in Syria and Egypt, were the wrong kinds of Christians as far as the Byzantines were concerned. Their belief that Jesus Christ had a single nature, known as monophysitism, was heretical to Orthodox Christianity as defined by the Council of Chalcedon, which insisted that Jesus had two natures, both human and divine. This was a big deal, and Monophysites were persecuted in the empire from time to time. The extent and nature of this persecution are not clear, but keeping it in mind improves our understanding of why the Ghassanids and the populations of Syria and Egypt more generally may have felt like second-class citizens and not supported their empire so wholeheartedly. Overall, though, in these wars between the empires and the later ones against the Arabs, the Ghassanids proved more loyal to the Byzantines than the Lakhmids did to the Sasanians. Khosrow II started his war really strongly. In 605, he took Dera in Mesopotamia, and that cost Focus's military regime a lot of prestige, leading to more internal unrest in the Byzantine Empire. In 609, Heraclius the Elder, ex-arch of Africa, a position established by Maurice, 
rebelled against the throne and claimed the imperial title for himself and his son, also named Heraclius. The rebellion either led to or coincided with revolts in Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, and this unrest weakened support for focus enough for Heraclius' rebellion to succeed. In 610, the 35-year-old was named emperor, and for those of you keeping track, this was also the year of Muhammad's first revelation. Of course, the Sasanians did not just let all that chaos go to waste. They took the initiative in the east, and by the time Heraclius was crowned emperor, they had effectively regained control of Armenia, most of Mesopotamia, and had even taken Caesarea in the middle of Anatolia. Heraclius tried to make peace, but the Sasanians were having none of it. He proceeded to lay siege to them in the city, but they escaped and burnt part of it down in the process. The next year, the Sassanids began their invasion of Syria. In 613, they met and defeated Heraclius's army at Antioch, cutting off the province from the rest of the empire. From there, they continued south, capturing major cities like Emesa and Damascus without any prolonged sieges. The residents of these cities yielded quickly rather than resist, a preference that may have deeper meaning. Some attributed this surrender to Monophysite discontent and others to general war weariness, but all agree that it did save the Syrians and their cities a whole lot of pain. The next year the Sassanids took Jerusalem, which held out for three weeks resulting in 20 to 90,000 deaths depending on who you ask. The loss of the holy city dealt a strong blow to Byzantine morale, but they wouldn't get a chance to catch their breath. In 615, the Sassanids attacked Anatolia again, this time reaching all the way to Chalcedon, so close to Constantinople that today it's a neighborhood of Istanbul. It would take them two years to take the city, but after they did they were in plain sight of the Byzantine capital, and Heraclius again sued for peace. The Sassanid forces did withdraw, but only to regroup and attack Egypt, taking the province with the fall of Alexandria after a year-long siege. With their domination of the eastern Mediterranean coastline complete, the Sassanids would go on to conquer a number of islands, threatening a naval assault on Constantinople. It is at this point that Khosrow II wrote to Heraclius, taunting him with the loss of his best cities, Caesarea, Alexandria, and Jerusalem, telling him that his capital was next, and asking him to see himself for the vile and inferior slave that he was. So far, this war had gone on for 20 years and saw nothing other than Sassanid victory. The empire that previously had the Euphrates for a western border now stretched to Alexandria and Chalcedon. To make matters worse for the Byzantines, the Slavs and Avars were still attacking them from the northwest and had taken several Balkan cities. Yet, it was at this point, right after celebrating Easter Mass in 622, that Heraclius personally led his counteroffensive. He marched an army about 30,000 strong to northeastern Anatolia. There, he met the Sassanid armies and managed a crushing victory when he discovered an ambush they had laid for his forces ahead of time and used the element of surprise to his advantage. This went a long way to returning Anatolia to Byzantine control and freed the emperor up to return to Constantinople and try to deal with the threat in the Balkans. In 623, he came to terms with the Avars and, even though they tried to kidnap him for ransom, he agreed to pay them large amounts of gold to keep the peace. 
Now free to focus all his energy on the Sassanids, Heraclius led the army east in 624, retaking Caesarea and marching through Armenia. He attacked cities deep in Sassanid territory and returned to the Caucasus to winter in Albania. The Shahanshah then sent three armies to trap him there, but using superior strategy, Heraclius kept them from joining up and tricked them into attacking separately, defeating them soundly. 625 was another highly successful year for the Byzantines, with Heraclius winning consecutive victories across the Caucasus and Mesopotamia. Even on the rare occasions that the Sassanids did manage to outmaneuver him in battle, Heraclius maintained control of his army and never lost too many of his forces. One of the armies Heraclius defeated that year was headed for Constantinople. While his victory delayed the Sassanid plan for another year, the Shahanshah's intentions were clear. Wary of the recent Byzantine success, Khosrow was looking to end the war once and for all by taking the capital. The siege of Constantinople took place in 626, and the Sassanids had allied with the Slavs and Avars for the occasion. For over a month, Constantinople's legendary walls and 12,000 Byzantine troops defended the city from almost 100,000 would-be invaders. Crucially, the Byzantine navy stopped any Sassanid attempts at supplying their European allies with siege equipment, something which could have spelt real trouble for the city. The siege ended days after the emperor's brother Theodore sailed into the city from the Black Sea with news that they had defeated a large Sassanid army in Anatolia. The undersupplied Avars retreated in early August, and even though the Sassanids remained in nearby Chalcedon, there was no longer any real danger for the Byzantines. It seems like Heraclius made the right choice when he decided not to take the army back to Constantinople to defend the capital in 626. He placed his faith in the city's impregnable walls and spent the year attacking the Sassanids, defeating their largest army and making common cause with another of their enemies, the Gokturks, a tribal confederation of Turkic peoples from across the Caspian and Central Asia. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, the emperor's forces had intercepted a letter from the Shahanshah, ordering the execution of the Sassanid general responsible for the siege of Constantinople. Heraclius shared this news with the general, who, incensed, moved his army to Mesopotamia and began instigating a rebellion against the Shahanshah back home. Things were looking very dire for the Sassanids when Heraclius won another major battle in 627, allowing him to menace very close to the empire's Persian heartlands. In 628, the Sassanid army revolted by imprisoning Khosrow and installing his son in his place. The new Shahanshah, Kavad II, quickly offered peace terms to the Byzantines, returning all their conquered lands, captured soldiers, and pillaged relics. The 26-year war was now at an end, and while neither empire had achieved any gains, it left both depleted and in some places completely destroyed. It is probably no coincidence that the Arabs managed to conquer all the lands ravaged by this war when they invaded five years later. While the Byzantines will lose Mesopotamia, Greater Syria, and, spoiler alert, North Africa, the Sassanids will lose everything. Although the Byzantines did not venture far into Sasanian territory, internal strife left them woefully unprepared to face a new enemy. In fact, no less than six Shahanshahs will fail to hold onto the throne in the next six years, and the one who finally sticks will be a 12-year-old. Kavad II died in an outbreak of plague later in 628, 
the same year he made peace with Heraclius. It was such a deadly epidemic it took the lives of fully half the population of the Sassanid provinces it impacted, which just happened to contain the royal capital and be the closest to the Arabs. But don't feel bad for Kavad. The disasters of succession that followed his death were largely due to him. By the time he killed his father on his fifth day in office, he had already killed all his brothers and half-brothers. So when the plague came for him, there were no males of the royal house of Sasan left to replace him. A surviving seven-year-old was chosen as his successor, handing the reins of power to the royal ministers, and that's when the general whom Heraclius had managed to convince to rebel against Khosrow marched on the capital and took the throne for himself. He was killed a few months later by a spear thrown by one of his fellow co-conspirators who installed a daughter of Khosrow II in his place. It was now the general's son's turn to rebel and take the throne, but he in turn was also deposed and the sister of the previous queen was installed in his place. She was propositioned by that spear-throwing co-conspirator and she had him assassinated, so his son deposed her and reinstalled her sister instead. About a year later, she was found dead, having been suffocated by a pillow in her own bed. The Sassanid civil war continued between multiple factions until the previously mentioned preteen was finally agreed upon after the events of our last episode. The victorious Byzantines enjoyed much more stability, but they had to contend with the enemies along their other borders, and had neither the resources nor the time to rebuild their defenses along their borders with the Sassanid Empire which they anyway reasoned were safe now that the Sassanids were so consumed with internal unrest. They punished the minorities who had not demonstrated sufficient loyalty to them, most of all the Jews, but also monophysites in Syria and Egypt, earning them even more resentment from populations that were already devastated and war-weary. The cooling of hostilities along their shared front meant that both empires were less interested in keeping their tribal coalitions close, as not much was expected from them going forward. We've already seen how these relationships were disrupted on either side, and although the Ghassanids and Lahmids will fight for their patrons in the coming wars with the Arabs, they will be much less devoted than they could have been. In fact, it can even be argued that disaffected Lahmids were responsible for instigating the nomadic Arabs against the Sassanid Empire in the first place. While I hope that talking about the conditions the Byzantines and Sassanids were in when the Empire armies came along has gone some way in explaining the incredible success the Arabs will encounter when they fight these empires, honestly, I still find it hard to believe, and I'm not sure any amount of explanation can change that. I don't think this will surprise you, but I should note that nothing in this episode came from the Arab sources. Arab historians writing in Baghdad in the 9th century seem to have had access to older Persian histories and to have some information on these wars from that perspective. However, the details provided are insufficient and mainly center around court intrigues, so I chose to use modern sources instead. Join me next time as we return to the Arab sources for a discussion of the story drain of Islam's second caliph, Umar ibn al-Khattab, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.